Morning, everyone. Good to see you today. A couple of weeks ago, we were installing uh, the outdoor speakers. I don't know if you've noticed those on the building around here. And uh, we're doing that, trying to get that done by Easter. And the lift that we were using got stuck in the flower bed right over on this side of the building. One of the tires slipped off the sidewalk and sunk into the soft dirt of that flower bed. And that bottomed the lift out on the concrete sidewalk, and it was not moving. Now, it took a little over two hours of work to get that thing unstuck. Now, thankfully, our security camera captured the whole thing. So I want to show you a sped-up version of what took place a couple weeks ago. So let's take a look at this. easy when you speed it up. It's rather frustrating apparently to go through. I wasn't here when it happened. So, But this is the kind of thing that happens to us in life, and this is what this series is about. We're going along doing fine, then all of a sudden a challenge emerges seemingly out of nowhere. Sometimes we can just apply power and just power through it, but other times, no matter how much we do that, it's kind of like the wheels are spinning and we're just stuck. Now, the reason we get stuck is usually not because of the size of the challenge on the outside, but the size of the challenge on the inside of us. Now, the outside challenges are very real, and they can be massive, significant challenges. But it's what we think in our heads and feel in our hearts that either will help us move forward in the face of whatever the challenge is, or will keep us stuck. So in this message series, we're going to take a look at the inside challenges that will shape how we handle whatever is out there, whatever challenges that we're facing. In particular, we're going to be looking at five common thoughts that get us stuck and then keep us stuck. And here are the five. It's too hard. It's not fair. It's not what I want. I'm too tired. I'm the only one. You recognize these? (laughs) Maybe from this morning? I mean, these are five common thoughts that just get us stuck. Now, the kids and the youth are going to be covering these same five thoughts in their time together with us on Sunday. And we're doing that because these five thoughts start young. Kind of at the, almost the first thoughts are some of these thoughts. In fact, this study that we're going to be going over was originally developed as a way to help parents teach their children how to get unstuck. I mean, it's a tremendous advantage if you can spend less of your life stuck. You can make progress if you're not stuck. The longer you're stuck, well, the less progress you're going to make. So just imagine if at the age of four and five and six and seven and and on, if, if you learn how to handle these thoughts and how to navigate through these thoughts and these emotions, that's a tremendous advantage in life. So I, if you're a parent, I would encourage you to talk about these five with your kids. Not just Sunday afternoon, but throughout the week. Help identify these. I mean, it's actually kind of fun, a little bit fun. It's a challenge 
to identify whenever these thoughts come up. And you'll hear them in your kids all the time. And if you're observant, you'll hear them in yourself a lot. So I would encourage you as parents to uh, go over these, help your kids identify these, identify them themselves, and begin to talk about how to overcome these five thoughts. Well, today's thought is, it's too hard. Have you ever thought that? Yeah, a lot. Now, is that a thought or a feeling? Well, usually it's both. This thought is usually accompanied by some pretty strong emotions, the emotions of discouragement and self-pity. And those emotions tend to serve as kind of an anchor to this thought, keeping us in this thought loop that gets us stuck. As long as we keep thinking and feeling that this is just too hard, we're going to stay stuck. If we think our marriage at some point is just just too hard, then we're not going to put in the additional effort that's required to deal with the challenges that every marriage faces. If we get to the point where we think, man, this parenting thing is just too hard, then we're going to do less, not more as we parent. We're going we're to attempt to coast and, and be tempted to kind of outsource more of our parenting responsibilities because it's just too hard. If we get to thinking that whatever we're facing in life is too hard, what will end up happening is usually we end up making our life even harder, and we sink deeper and deeper into the swamp. Have you ever wondered why it is that life is so hard? I mean, there are better and worse days and years, but no one gets a pass on life being hard. I mean, maybe you had a hard family life growing up. Maybe you had a hard time in school, or you had a hard time finding your place, and maybe a hard time making friends. Or a hard time getting and keeping a good job. Maybe you had a hard time finding a spouse. Or having found a spouse, you've had a hard time being happy with that spouse. Maybe you're facing something right now that's hard, maybe with your health or the health of someone you love. And we've all faced and will face death, the hardest of all hearts. In 1 Peter 1.7, we get a, an indication as to why life is so hard. Peter is writing to a group of Christians that are facing a tremendous amount of trials, lots of hard. And here's what he says. These, speaking of the trials, have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. One of the perspectives that we tend to have is we evaluate life based on the surface circumstances that we're facing. And we tend to think, well, that's pretty much what life is about, is whatever is going on around me, whatever I can see. But what this is saying is that, no, actually the more important things in life, the gold of life, is getting at and growing what's on the inside of us, primarily our faith in God, the condition of our faith. Because that's what's going to last. Whatever is on the surface here, whatever circumstances that's just temporary. But the condition of your relationship with God, your faith in God, that, that lasts forever. That's the gold. But to get at the gold, tunnels have to be dug. That's the heart. The hard stuff in life are the tunnels that are needed to mine the gold of faith. If you've ever visited a mine site and you ask a miner, why is there, what's with all the tunnels? What's with all the dirt all over the place? They'll look at you like you don't understand what's going on here. Gold isn't usually just laying on the surface. That happens every once in a while, but if you're going to get gold, you're going to have to dig for it. It's buried deep. 
in the crust of the earth. And in order to get at the gold, tunnels are required. And that's the way it is in life. If we decide that it's too hard and we just give up because it's too hard, we might be giving up just a few feet away from the gold that God intended to mine out of this heart, out of this circumstance. And once we've made the decision to quit, it becomes easier and easier to give up again and again, or at least just coast again and again. If we don't get up unstuck, then what we'll end up with is a bunch of half-dug tunnels, a bunch of hard and not much gold, not much faith. So how do we develop faith in the middle of the heart? Faith has two sides to it. It's trust and obey. These go together, but you do one, then you do the other. You do one, you do the other. It's kind of like riding a bike. You've got to keep balanced on these two, trust and obey. We have to trust God with what is, whatever we're facing, and then take the next step to do what he said. Now, Gideon, in the Old Testament portion of the Bible, is a story about a man who it proves to be a great example of how to face a situation that's too hard. Gideon faced something that was way too hard. And like Gideon, we must first trust God, and then we must surrender control. That's what it means practically to trust, to surrender control. When we meet Gideon, the Israelites had been oppressed by the Midianites for seven years. What was happening is every harvest, the Midianite armies would come through and steal all of the food right at harvest time. So they, they would do all the work of planting and um, weeding and taking care of the fields, and then right at harvest time, the Midianite armies would come through and steal it all. And so they had been reduced now to starvation. They were living in caves in the mountainside. And the people cried out to God for help, and God tapped Gideon to recruit an army to mount a defense. Now, I want you to notice, as this story begins in the book of Judges, the difference between the way God addresses Gideon and how Gideon responds. First, the way God addresses Gideon. This is found in Judges 6, verse 12. This is what it says. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. A few verses later, verse 15, here's Gideon's response. But Lord, Gideon asked, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my family. So notice the contrast. God calls Gideon a mighty warrior. And Gideon says, I'm really not either. I'm not mighty, and I'm not a soldier. I'm not a warrior. In fact, what he says is, I am the weak, I'm part of the weakest tribe. And I'm not just the weakest of the 12 tribes. I'm at the bottom of the weakest of the 12 tribes. And I'm at the tail end of one of the least families in the weakest tribe in all of Israel. In other words, I think, God, you, you pointed at the wrong guy. And Gideon is not lying here. He is the last guy anyone would have picked for this job. No one would have ever gotten to Gideon. Of all of the it's-too-hard moments in history, this one stands near the top. I think the only one harder was Jesus on the cross. Now, why, why did God do this? Why did God tap Gideon? Why is this story in the, the Bible? Well, I think one of the reasons is not only to instruct us, but so that none of us could ever say, well, my situation is harder. Trust me, whatever you're facing, 
It's not Gideon hard. It's not as hard as it was for him. And so whatever you're facing, like God did with Gideon, God can help us navigate the hard. Now for Gideon, it starts hard, and then it just keeps getting harder and harder. After Gideon kind of whines and complains for a while, he realizes that there's no getting out of this assignment from God. So he eventually recruits an army to take on the army of Midian, which was 300,000 strong. All Gideon could get in response to his call to arms was 32,000 men. So 32,000 men, now we're going to face 300,000. So what had been too hard was now way too hard. But then God says, you know, 32,000, that's really too many. What? God didn't think it was hard enough, apparently. So he reduces the size of Gideon's army down to just 300 men. Now it's insanely too hard. Why did God do this? Well, let me ask this question. How does a person come to decide to trust God and to grow in their trust of God? It's not because they've read a verse that tells them that they need to trust God. It's not even because they have decided to trust God or they want to trust God. That's an important step. But that's not what really allows our faith to grow because we think we need to grow and because we've read a verse that tells us that we need to grow. No, the reason we trust God is because we go through an experience that forces us to have to decide whether or not we're going to surrender to God in this situation. We have to face a real situation where we are forced to say, I'm going to trust God with this, or I'm not going to trust God with this. That's the only way we grow in faith. And in every case, those experiences, those faith or trust-growing experiences feel like they're just too hard because in our own power, they are. If they weren't too hard, then we wouldn't need to trust God with them. We could just handle it. So the only way we're going to grow is as God brings us things that are way too hard. Now, whenever we think that it's too hard, it reveals that we have overpromoted ourselves. We have put ourselves in a position of authority that we're not qualified for. In short, we are acting like God, who's in control of everything, and for whom nothing is too hard. So it's no wonder that we're thinking it's too hard, because being God, for us, is way too hard. We don't come anywhere close to that job description. So if we're going to get unstuck, what we first need to do is demote ourselves, surrender ourselves to God, and elevate God back to his rightful place as ruler of all. Now, one of the ways that we do this practically is by addressing the three questions that keep us thinking that we're in control. The why question, the who question, and the how question. You know, those who are in charge of something that goes wrong, they always ask three questions, if, if they're, they're good leaders. Whenever something goes wrong, you're in charge of it, these are three questions that are really helpful to ask. Question number one, why did this happen? Question number two, who's responsible for this? Question number three, how can I fix it? If you're in charge of something, those are three great questions to ask whenever something falls apart. 
Now, what we tend to do in life, though, is we tend to not ask these questions enough about the limited areas of life that we really are in charge of. And we tend to ask these questions too much about the circumstances of life that we're not in charge of, that we don't have control over. And in doing so, we get and then we stay stuck. This is what Gideon did. He asked the three questions that keep getting us stuck in life. And these three questions that keep us stuck do so because they keep us thinking that we're in control. That's why we keep asking these questions. We have this illusion that we're in charge of this whatever it is, and we're not. We're maybe in charge of this smaller thing, but we're not in charge of this. But we keep asking these three questions. Let's look at these three. The first of the three is, why is this happening? Why is this happening? This is where Gideon started. Judges 6, 12 through 13. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. That's the part we read. But, sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, here it is. Why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? So this is the first question that Gideon asked because when things get hard, it's the first question that we ask. Why is this happening? Now, like it was with Gideon, this is usually a loaded question. Now, a loaded question is called a loaded question because it hauls more freight than just the question. It's not just a question. It's really an accusation disguised as a question. If you were to Look at it written down. There would be a question mark at the end of it, but everybody who hears it asked, they know that this isn't really a question. This is an accusation. For example, recently I asked my wife, how much chili peppers, how much chili peppers in this chili? <laughs> now, she knows why I'm asking that, right? It's not because I'm fascinated with the composition of chili. It's because she knows I'm a spice wimp. And I probably think there's too much chili pepper in this chili. So rather than just say, you know what, this is a little too spicy for me, I ask the question and load it up with an accusation. How much chili pepper is in here? She knows, not a question. If she just said, hey, you know, a couple teaspoons, oh, okay. That's not what I was asking. I was saying something. Now, we are capable of asking honest why questions. For example, just a few weeks ago, I asked myself this question. I wonder why my garage door is not opening anymore when I click the clicker. That's a good why question because I'm actually in charge of that. The answer, I need to change the batteries in the clicker. Oh, okay. Now it's working. But when I got prostate cancer a couple of years ago, that was a different why question that emerged out of my heart. Now, again, if you could hear these questions asked, you would know by the tone of voice and the inflection that they're very different why questions. You know, I'd, I'd ask myself, huh, why is the garage door not opening? But when it came to the prostate cancer, it was, why did I get cancer? Now, the first one I'm in charge of, and the answer was easy. But the second one, why did I get cancer? Well, that's pretty impossible to answer which is your first indication, you're not in charge of it. I'm not in charge of that one. God's in charge of it. The problem is, 
I'm not always pleased with how he's doing his job, and so I ask a loaded why question. This is what Gideon did. He said, where, where are his wonders I've heard about? I've heard the stories of all of the miraculous power displays of God. We're hiding in caves, starving. I haven't seen it. He goes on to talk about the Lord bring us up out of Egypt. He says, you know, God, you may have brought us up out of Egypt, but now it appears those days are past. It looks like we're just on our own. This is a loaded why question. The loaded why questions keep us stuck because they keep us from focusing on what we are in charge of and what we can do something about. Now, here's the complication with the why question. The complication is that what we are in charge of and what God is in charge of are not separate, neatly defined areas. There's always some overlap. And this is where it gets confusing for us. For example, is cancer all God and none of me? Do I have no responsibility for my health? Well, no. I mean, if you eat poorly, if you smoke, chances of cancer increase. Now, I've never smoked, so but I haven't always eaten well, so I am now working to change my diet, and I'm doing much better on that. So because I'm eating better now, does that guarantee that the cancer will never return and that I'll be free of cancer the rest of my life? Well, if you look at the websites that I frequent, yeah. They pretty much promise, hey, you eat this thing, you take this supplement, no cancer. But I know they're over-promising to charge me money. And if I believe that, well, I'm going to really get stuck at some point if it ever comes back. Now, that, that is partly my responsibility, but I'm not the one completely in charge of my health. I have some responsibility, but that's bigger than me. And whenever things get too hard, it's an opportunity for us to look up and surrender to the one who's in charge of it all. This, whatever this is, whatever this hard thing is, it is happening I mean, I may have a role in this, but bottom line, it's happening because God has a plan. I don't know what it is. I would sure like to know, but I don't need to know because that's above my pay grade. I just work here. I don't run the place. And if you spend your days wondering why on your job, why the CEO of the company did what they did or aren't doing what you think they should, you spend all your time asking that question, guess what's going to happen? You're not going to do a good job on whatever you've been given to do. So answer the small whys in life, the things that God really has put you in charge of, and then leave the big whys to him if you want to stay out of the swamp. Question number two is who? Who is to blame for this hard thing? When life gets hard, we accuse God first of wrongdoing, and then we go looking for somebody else to blame for what's happening. This is just the way we think. For Gideon, the object of his finger pointing was pretty easy. It was the Midianites. As he says, he goes on to say this, but now the Lord has abandoned us and put us in the hand of Midian. What he's saying is if it wasn't for Midian, we wouldn't be starving and living in caves. And you know what? He's right. So let me ask you this. If you're facing something hard right now, who, who is to blame for how hard your life is right now? My guess is you can probably come up with a few names. If it wasn't for them, 
you wouldn't be facing this hard thing right now. So like Gideon, you're right. The problem is, what can you do about them? Sometimes there's something you can do that's constructive and helpful, but usually all you can do is get really angry at them. And anger, well, when it comes to getting stuck, anger is like quicksand. You step into anger and you start thrashing about, well, you are stuck, stuck, stuck. The more you thrash, the more stuck you get. Because it turns out that other people are very uncontrollable. This is what makes them so challenging. They are another part of life that we have no control over. What that means is there's always going to be someone to point a finger at, someone to blame for how hard your life is. But this question ultimately leads us to the same place the first question does, back to God, the one who's in control. I want to point out a truth and a lie in what Gideon said when he pointed his finger at Midian. He said, it is God who put them into the hands of Midian. Is that true? Yeah. God could have protected them from that. But for some reason, he didn't. So it was accurate to say, you know, God, you put us in the hands of the Midianites. That is true. Whoever is making your life hard right now, it would be accurate to say, God could rescue you from them, but for some reason he hasn't yet. So he has put you in their hands. That's true. What is not true, the lie part of what Gideon said, is that God has abandoned you into their hands. That's what he said. God, you, not only did you put us in the hand of Midian, but you put us in the hand of Midian and you turned and walked away and you don't even know what's going on now. You've abandoned us. That is not true, as the story of Gideon will show. God has not abandoned you into whatever the heart is. He is with you, and there is a purpose for this heart. He has put you in it, but he hasn't abandoned you. And that brings us to the third question. How can I save me? We've decided it's too hard, in part because we are looking at our capacity. And given our abilities, and given our capacity, it's just, it's too much. It's too hard. Judges 6, 14 through 16, we read this. The Lord turned to him, speaking about Gideon, and said, Go in the strength you have, and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? But Lord, God asked, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites together. Again, notice the two parts of God's statement to Gideon. Go in the strength you have and save Israel, part one. Part two, am I not sending you? Notice the part that Gideon keyed in on. How can I save Israel? So what God is saying, Gideon... You're going to have to do some stuff. I'm not going to save Israel while you lay on your bed and watch me do it. No, you're going to have to go in the strength that you have, in the limited capacity you have, and you're going to have to really do some hard things. But I'm the one, I'm, I'm sending you. But as Gideon looks out at this task, 
he forgets the whole God sending him part, and he looks at his own strength and says, well, <laughs> again, I, I'm, I can't, I'm not a mighty warrior. I can't do this. I don't have the capacity. Gideon's faith is pretty low at this point. As he looks out, all he can see is his capacity. It's up to him. The fact that God had said, I'm sending you, and I will be with you, that didn't seem to factor into Gideon's thought process. Now, we tend to do the same thing. We look at whatever the heart is that we're facing, and we look at our capacity, and we think, how can I save me? How can I fix this? How can I handle this? And we may, as we think of God, tend to think this way. Well, God's out there doing stuff, but it appears that he's abandoned me in this. So this one's on me. And if it's up to me, well, it really is too hard. So how do we get to the place where we will surrender control and work not only in the strength that we have, but also trust in the power of God? Well, like with Gideon, God has to ramp up the heart. It has to get harder, usually. As I said earlier, 32,000 men responded to Gideon's initial call to arms. Way too few to take on an army of 300,000. Now, you have to understand, Midian's army, they were seasoned soldiers. Gideon's army were just volunteer people who had real jobs and were going to come together to try to protect themselves. So it wasn't just the numbers, it was the training and the capacity of these two forces. So in Judges 7-2, the Lord said to Gideon, of the 32,000 men, he says, you, you have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands. Why? Well, in order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved you. Too many men? How, is, how exactly is 32,000 against 300,000 too many? Well, the, way, the reason it's too many, according to what God is saying here, is even as lopsided as those numbers are, it's still conceivably possible for you to gain victory against 300,000. And if you look at the history of military conflict, it's pretty rare, but you can find some circumstances, given brilliant tactics and the right circumstances where a force outnumbered 10 to 1 is defeated, or gains a victory, rather. So it's, it's conceivably possible. So God told Gideon to tell the men that who were afraid to go home. A lot of them were afraid. 22,000 left. So he had 32,000. He said, if any of you guys are scared, go home. All right. <laughs> That's not the way it is in the movies. No, the movies, you step forward. But this time, it was like, yeah, we're out of here. We're going back to our homes. 22,000 left. Okay, now it's impossible. But God was not done subtracting. 10,000 is what Gideon had now. God further subtracted Gideon's army until there were only 300 men left. Now, this was not an army. This was a joke. 300 against 300,000? But I encourage you to read this story because God used those 300 men to defeat an army of 300,000. And when that happened, who got credit for it? Gideon? I mean, how could Gideon write the book let me explain how you defeat an army of 300,000 with 300 men. Here's what you do. <laughs> no, you read the story, it's like God got credit for that. 
And this is the way God operates. God most often doesn't use people who have all that they need and who are brimming with confidence. But he uses people who have been subtracted to the point where the only way this is going to happen is God's going to have to show up and do something. And he does this because we're operating beyond our own strength. And we've seen God come through again and again. Those are the people that God uses. The work of God is always too hard because it's the work of who? God. And it requires his power to save the day. If whatever you're doing is conceivably possible, something that you can see yourself doing, it's not going to grow your faith. So God will push you into the heart. It's as we step out to do what's beyond our power that we get to see God show up. And we get to live the kind of life that doesn't say, hey, look at me. Let me, let me write a book on how you can be amazing like me. No, we live a life that says, check out who did this. We bring glory to God. That's the trust part. And those are the three questions that keep us getting stuck and not surrendering. Now, having surrendered to God, then what we need to do is obey. That's the next part of faith, trust and obey. What obey means practically is step by step. That's how we obey, step by step. So we've looked at the three questions that keep us stuck. Now the one question that gets us moving. In the middle of the things of life that are too hard, this one question gets us out of the ditch, out of the swamp, and moving again. And here's the question. What is the next step? What's the next step? Now, what's fascinating to me about the story of Gideon is God didn't start Gideon with 300 men facing 300,000. That's not where the story opens up. He started by telling Gideon to remove the idol from his family's backyard. That was a much smaller step. Now, it was a big risk, and Gideon, boy, it took a lot of faith for him to do this. But it was a small step. But it wasn't anything close to the step of leading 300 against 300,000. There were eight smaller steps that God told Gideon to take before he had to take the final biggest of all steps. Now, God didn't lay out the entire plan to Gideon. He didn't say, you're going to do this, then you're going to do this, then you're going to do this, then you're going to do this, and then, boom, amazing things are going to happen. No, that's not the way it does. That's not the way it works. He gave him one step at a time. And by my count, as I read through the story, there were nine steps. Each one a little harder than the next. God does the same thing today. We're given just the next step. What we'd like to see is, could you show me how this all works out? (laughs) Could you show me every step and where this is all going to end? That would really help me in taking this step. It's like, no, you're not going to come up with gold, the gold of faith, that way. I'll just show you the next step, and then I'll show you the next one, and on into the future. So the best question that we can ask whenever we face something hard is, well, what's the next step? Let me just show you graphically how what we've been talking about works. God leads us on a path in life, and on each side of that path is a swamp. What happens in swamps? We get stuck. 
If we wander off into the swamp, we will get stuck. Whenever life gets hard on the path that God has us on, the three questions that we addressed first, these three questions can take us off into the swamp. Why is this happening? Who can I point my finger at? Who can I blame? Or how can I save me? With my resources and my power, how can I handle this? Now, these three questions are an invitation to bow at the feet of God, the one who is the the why, the who, and the how behind everything that happens in life. But if at the point of these questions emerging in our heart, we refuse to surrender to God, the only one that can answer these questions, and we keep asking these questions, these questions will take us into the swamps and keep us there, stuck. If we allow these questions, you just keep running unresolved in our minds. Why, God, is this happening to me? Look at what you're doing to me. How can I ever fix this? If we allow these questions to keep running unresolved in our mind like a loop, it's because we're unwilling to surrender control to God and trust Him in the middle of the heart. Let God handle the why, the who, and the how. Focus your attention on the only question you really have control over. That's the what. That's what keeps you moving forward on the path. What is the next step? That's all you can really do. Now, when you read the story of Gideon, and I encourage you to read it, it all makes sense because you can read it in about 15 minutes. But if you were Gideon living the story, none of it made sense until the last step, after the last step, actually. And this is the way life is. Obeying God doesn't always make sense. But it's the only way to stay out of the swamp and keep moving forward in life. So I have two next steps for you to consider taking this week. The first one I've already mentioned, I would encourage you to go back and read in the book of Judges, the story of Gideon. I didn't have time in the time we have to tell you all the details. It's a great story. I would encourage you to read it. And then I've got a verse that I'm going to mention here at the end that I would encourage you to memorize. If you're new to the idea of memorizing verses, let me just say this. For me personally and many people that I know, I have found that memorizing verses is the most helpful of all tools in this internal battle that we all go through with our minds and our emotions. There has been nothing that has helped me get out of the swamp more quickly and more consistently than memorizing key verses. So when it comes to the it's too hard thought, here's a verse I would recommend that you commit to memory. Jeremiah 32, 17. Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. It's a great verse. So whenever you're facing the hard, walk outside, look at all that the outstretched arm of God has created. Say this verse to yourself. And realize, okay, if God can do all of this, I guess what I'm facing is not too hard for him. It's too hard for me, not too hard for him. And then ask, all right, what do I need to do next? And get back on track. Let's pray. Father, we, um, we don't like the tunnels that are required to dig out and get at the condition of our trust in you. 
But in faith, we recognize that it is our faith in you that is the goal of life. It's what will make the biggest difference in this life and definitely in the life to come. And so whatever the heart is that we're facing right now, we accept it as from your hand. And we thank you that you have not abandoned us to this, but you do have a purpose in this. Help us to trust you and then to obey you to take the next step. Pray for the kids and the youth that are wrapping up their time together now that you'd that their level of understanding and their perspectives and their situations they're facing, you'd give them insight into this as well. And I pray for the parents as they begin to talk to their, their teens and their younger kids about these matters. God, I pray that you would help a whole generation to do much better than maybe we have in getting unstuck. We pray this now in the name of Jesus. Amen.